Welcome to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. Ever wonder what a U.S. Marshal does? Ever wonder what kind of work that entails? Ever sit there and think to yourself, geez, these guys are constantly chasing fugitives. What kind of person does it take to do that work? Ever thought about what bail bondsmen do? How does the money flow? How do you make a profit? What's the liability? Well, we're going to find these things out. I've got a guest calling in from Seattle, Washington, Danny Barron. He is a former U.S. Marshal, 32 years of service, also runs Lacey O'Malley Bail Bonds out of Seattle, Washington, where he is the vice president and director of public relations. And his wife is the president of the company. Am I correct on that, Danny? Yes, that is correct. She is she is the boss. So she is the boss, and then uh, you take the marching orders from her, correct? Exactly. That's like <laughs> on a daily basis, John. That's the way it has to be, isn't it, brother? That's right. Isn't that it? I mean, that's the only way we keep the marriages going. we got to take the marching that's orders. Right. That's but right. I, I appreciate you coming on, and I am fascinated. Now, we're going to get into a little bit about uh, Christopher Boyce, the Falcon, the Falcon and the Snowman. As you know, I interviewed Christopher and his wife, Kate and their uh, biographer a couple of weeks ago, Vince. But there's so much more to you than just that case. There's your entire career, and again, I am fascinated by what a bail bondsman does. I, I did some research on it. It's not what people think, is it? No, it's not. In fact, there are a lot of misconceptions about what we really do. That is it. That is why I want to do that. But I want to ask you first. Now, you were originally a Seattle beat cop back in the mid-'70s. You could have gone anywhere, it looks like. You could have gone in any other type of law enforcement work. Why the U.S. Marshals? What was the appeal there to you? Well, I'll tell you, I, I had kind of an odd uh, introduction to the Marshal Service. Uh, when I was on the police department, I was in a, a specialized unit, um, you know, probably what one would consider to be the elite part of the patrol unit, which was called the Tactical Squad. And we were the, the precursor, the forerunner of, you know, the SWAT teams and so forth as we know them today. And, of course, we didn't have the, the technical expertise and knowledge that these guys have out there today. But, you know, we were the start of it. And one of the things that we had the task of doing was to uh, ensure security around uh, the various uh, office buildings, downtown Seattle and so forth, during uh, the anti-war demonstration for the Vietnam War, uh, and that was starting in the late 60s and into the early 70s. And uh, I remember one day very distinctly standing on the steps of the U.S. courthouse in downtown Seattle uh, in my battle dress fatigues and, you know, in my baton out and a helmet on my head, and I sent some motion behind us, and there were a bunch of guys standing back there in, in suits with uh, batons and helmets on their heads, but they had on business suits. <laughs> and I said, who are these guys? And somebody said, oh, those are U.S. Marshals. And I said, Marshal? you got to be kidding me. I thought those guys went out with uh, John Wayne and horses, right? And uh, no, no. So uh, subsequently, I met the U.S. Marshal, uh, Chuck Robinson, really a great guy, and uh, he was the uh, uh, Nixon appointee as the U.S. Marshal for the Western District of Washington. We hit it off. Um, I uh, had uh, I left the police department just uh, for a brief time to help in a family 
business that uh, business enterprise that they are starting, and uh, planning to come back to the uh, police department. In the meantime, I thought, you know, I think I'm going to, you know, just put it in my application to that marshal's job and see how that works out. And long story short, eventually, I after you know lengthy delays and so forth with federal employment, I was appointed as uh, sworn in as a deputy U.S. marshal on March the seventh of 1974. Wow, that's just, it's just incredible. So it was just something that just worked out for you. It was kind of preordained, more or less, the way it worked. But let me ask you now, what exactly is the mission of the U.S. Marshal Service? Now, I ask this. I have a cousin who was a U.S. Marshal working out of Maine. So I know a little bit here. But what is the exact mission? And tell me, what has changed since you were a marshal going back when you began the mission statement must have changed a lot over the last 35 40 years yeah absolutely uh, you're you're right on the money there john i'll tell you um well historically the u.s marshal service is the oldest federal law enforcement agency in the nation um, they were uh, formed um, by the judiciary act of 1789 and uh, they're are uh, U.S. Marshals in every court district, and there are U.S. Attorneys in every court district. And both of those positions are what we would call political plums. They are uh, appointments by the President of the United States uh, to the people to um, to uh, man those positions. Now, every U.S. Marshal has those Deputy U.S. Marshals, as my title was, uh, who are civil servants. And we go through the vetting process and so forth that any any government employee would have. Uh, we are not subject to the political uh, wins. Uh, we serve uh, not at the discretion of the President, as as do the U.S. Marshals, uh, but we, uh, we serve um, as the job that we do and do it well. So, yes, back in 1789, the first 13 U.S. Marshals, um, began enforcing federal law. Whiskey tax is a big thing. The first marshals uh, were lost in action when enforcing the uh, whiskey law taxes and so forth. Um, then, uh, subsequently, in uh, later history, the U.S. Marshals were the ones that went off into the Indian territories and and uh, brought law and order out there. And those were usually court-appointed marshals. And there's a great history there. You know, Wyatt Earp and Bat Masters and all those guys that uh, were at the OK Corral. And uh, then into modern days, the Marshal Service really kind of lost a lot of its authority, so to speak. Nobody knew who they were. They became a small group of people that were basically out there serving process and moving federal prisoners and had this kind of other thing going on about uh, the uh, the protection of federal judiciary figures. And then also in the 70s, there was a time when we were instrumental in the civil rights movement. And it was incredible because here was this group of guys who uh, really were were good law enforcement officers, and they took on a task that a lot of other law enforcement agencies didn't want to handle, especially local law enforcement, didn't want to be siding with uh, the desegregation efforts and so forth. They didn't want to be seen as, as being on the other side, if you will. Okay. And so the marshals were called in. I have a very dear friend here in Seattle, African-American guy, whose parents were um, they were uh, educators in Tennessee, and they could move to a better house. And they tried to do that, and of course there was a lot of you know, repercussions because yeah. of that. And, and I remember this day, and he's a very prominent attorney in Seattle. And he said, we were at a dinner one night, and he said, Danny, you know, he says, the only people that came forward and stood up for us in the law enforcement perspective, federal or any of them, were the U.S. Marshals. And he says, in those days, they didn't have cell phones. 
not in, a lot of even radio sometimes, but they gave us their personal numbers at their hotels or wherever they were staying. They were available 24 hours a day to help us. So that's sort of the history of the Marshal Service. And as you ask, you know, we, you know this is the, the evolution, the progression. When I came to work, it was staffed by a lot of uh, fellows that uh, were um, prior law enforcement. They took the Marshal's job as being sort of a retirement job for them. Oh. And uh, we came along, I say we, a whole group of people were hired uh, during the late uh, 60s and the early 70s, as I was, and most of us had some law enforcement background. And we actually read the manuals and said, well, you know, we're supposed to be doing some of these other things, too, you know, like arresting people. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and of course, you know, turf is a big issue with federal law enforcement. And so in 1978, uh, we were given a mandate by Congress uh, to go out and track down fugitives. And that was always something that we should have been doing, but pretty much had, had moved away from. And uh, we, we took that uh, task over from the FBI at the time, and of course that started a little bit of rivalry there. And the Christopher Boyce case was one of the first yeah. uh, major cases we had at that time, and, and it worked out well for us because uh, we were able to track him down and arrest him. Uh, subsequent to that, um, marshals are the servant of the federal court system. Uh, most of my career, we did things uh, that were based on a court order. Uh, for example, the Boyce case, the arrest was made based on a court order, which is the warrant of arrest. And every uh, uh, person that's indicted or charged in the federal system, the warrant goes to the U.S. Marshal and says uh, to the United States Marshal for the Western District of Washington, you or your authorized representatives are hereby ordered to arrest so-and-so. And that's a court order. And we did everything based on on court orders, very little proactive things, because that wasn't our mission. Um, I always point to the movie uh, The Fugitive, uh, when um, uh, Harrison Ford was standing in the culvert there, and, yep. and uh, Tommy Lee Jones was there, and... Uh, um, uh, he, he said, I, I turned away, he says, I did not uh, kill my wife. And Tommy Lee Jones, I don't care. But is <laughs> that guy, true, though, Denny? But Denny, yeah. but Denny, is that true, though? I mean, we're going to get a little bit more into Boyce's situation, but from everything I read about you, you were known to be a very compassionate and respectful law enforcement agent, especially with the people that you were you know, tasked to go after and bring back the fugitives. Is it hard to separate yourself if you read the person's case and maybe not, you know, and question what it is that's going on here? Or do you just have to try to keep it strictly, this is the job, that's it? You don't have to worry about anything else? Well, you know, there, there's uh, truth to both those sides there. Okay. Uh, there, there definitely is a uh, uh, the business end of it. You know, you do your job uh, the way that uh, you you believe you should do it. Uh, the, you know, the, there's no uh, personal feeling as far as actually tracking that person down. There are some people you do develop a, a certain interest in because maybe they've uh, committed particularly egregious crimes, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. And and then there are the other people. Uh, and, and Christopher kind of falls into that uh, uh, realm of individuals as well. The ones that you develop, uh, you know, okay, I can see, you know, both sides of this story. And uh, one in particular, I arrested a, an individual here in the uh, up in North Battleford, Saskatchewan province after a long hunt for this guy, a Native American tribal uh, uh, chief of that tribe. And um, I, I did, knew the guy personally. I liked him. Um, 
I would be an advocate for him uh, in the future. Uh, we arrested him. He subsequently passed away while he was in custody a number of years ago. But he did a lot of things for the Native American culture. He brought in alcohol. He brought in fi- uh, fireworks. He brought in cigarettes onto Indian reserves, and he fought the federal government and all these things. And, and in the end, I mean, he never owned a casino, but he certainly opened the doors for that great legacy that the Natives now have to bring in money to their tribes to better their life. And, uh, you know, I, I have a respect for the guy for that. It's and, almost like an Indian version of Robin Hood. Yeah, yeah. And he did some bad things. So we know that. He got convicted. And that's why I was after him. But there the is, thing, it, yeah, it's true. Most things are never really black and white, are they? Now, you know, that's really true, and I've, I've learned that even to a greater extent in, in, the, uh, in the bail bond business. Yeah, absolutely. That I'm looking forward to. But let me ask you now, the marshals are also tasked with dealing with the witness protection program, correct? Correct. Okay. That is correct. Now, I had the, the honor of a few years back interviewing Gerald Shore, the uh, yes. godfather of the witness protection program. Sure. Now, how do you see the witness protection program as it stands today, uh, you know, Henry Hill's been through the system and he pretty much, you know, walked away from it. Sammy the Bull, someone like that. They bring him in. He decides he's not even going to play ball with the system. He can't help himself. He goes right back to being who he was. Right, Is that right. more often normal that these criminals, you take him away from the big city, you take him away from the crimes that they're used to committing, you dump him in Nebraska somewhere? And it's still who they are, and they just can't help themselves? Yeah. You know, that's, that's the real dichotomy of that. And, there, and then nothing to take away from the Witness Protection Program, because yeah. it's vital to, you know, the federal Very law much enforcement so. effort. There's no question about that. But you're right. I mean, the reason people, m- most people, not all people, most people are in the Witness Protection Program because they were involved in something to see something, hear something, participate in something that's an illegal activity. And the reason they have that, that closest is because... They were legal participants themselves, and now they want to you know, cut a deal with the government. And you're you're exactly right. It's hard to take a person out of that element and and put them into, like you say, Nebraska. Or one of the the uh, examples I had was I had a protected witness, and uh, he was from Los Angeles. He was a um, part-time movie actor. He was a salesman, a real high-profile, high-flyer kind of guy. Got involved in an issue and uh, went into the witness protection program. They relocate this guy to Idaho. And, I mean, here's this Mexican guy. He's a handsome guy. He wears beautiful clothes. He's driving in Riviera through downtown Poison That's undercover? I don't think so. Well, that's, I mean, don't they do a study or do some sort of you know, pre-groundwork that you, you can't, you're taking, you know, you know, just like you said, you're taking a Hispanic guy, you're putting him there, they come in, you know, they take an Italian mafia guy, they drop him out in Idaho. It doesn't look like they're prepping for it, it's just they're kind of putting him there, and it looks, doesn't it look odd to the locals? Well, actually, you do have those occasions, and there's no question about it. However, uh, overall, in most cases, they do a pretty good job of relocating people. Now, we had a number of folks that relocated the Seattle area here, and I don't know of any of them other than Henry Hill, who, <laughs> who really got in a whole lot of trouble afterwards. Uh, so they do vet it. In most cases, it works up quite well, and it's a good program, and, and there's no question that it's been beneficial to the prosecution of a lot of very dangerous and, and uh, uh, difficult people. Well, that's and, what I learned from Gerald Shure. I mean, it, yeah. the program, it was, you know, nothing until he got there, and then they kind of learned it as they went. Oh, 
true. We we created that problem. The marshal service created that problem. There's no question about it. And you know, it's one of those things. that there is a learning curve, and you do uh, learn things as you go along. And now I'll, I will tell you this. Uh, in the last years on the job, and, and even now, it has become so sophisticated that a lot of those pitfalls that we were just you know, kind of jokingly talk about uh, are are no more. I mean, they've figured out how to get around those things. They've developed much better ways of bringing people back into a community. Bring uh, them. They've got resources and in, in um, you know human human resource people yep. and that kind of thing that they work with on a regular basis. And it, it's much more. Sm- smoothly run today than it ever has been. It's a living, breathing system. We're going to roll into a break, Danny. We're talking to Danny Barand. We are talking about the U.S. Marshals Service and Bail Bondsman Service. We'll be back in a few moments. Drinking while you're pregnant can give your baby brain damage and birth defects, learning disabilities, too. Look, here's the deal. If you drink alcohol while you're pregnant, you may be ruining your baby's chances of ever having a normal life. All forms of alcohol are dangerous, even beer and wine. Play it smart. Alcohol and pregnancy don't mix. This message is brought to you by the Chester County Department of Drug and Alcohol Services. For more information, please call toll-free 1-866-286-3767 or visit nofas.org. Have you heard of the Minding Your Mind Foundation? Their primary objective is to improve the lives of adolescents and young adults by providing education associated with mental illness and mental health issues. They strive to educate students and enlighten everyone that these illnesses are both common and treatable. Help is available and recovery is possible. Student programs are free to middle and high schools. To learn more and donate, visit mindingyourmind.org. In Philadelphia, pretzels are a tradition, and nobody makes them better than my friend Jimmy over at the Philadelphia Pretzel Factory in Westchester. Since 2003, Jimmy and his staff have been committed to making the best pretzels in the Philly area. Every pretzel is hand-twisted to ensure freshness and quality, and you can't beat the price. Bring in your Westchester University football or basketball ticket stub the day after a home game and receive a free pretzel. That's the Philly Pretzel Factory, located at 125 North Church Street in downtown Westchester. Open seven days a week. Stop in or call Jimmy at 610-430-7100. That's 610-430-7100. Westchester's Philly Pretzel Factory. Hey, Philadelphia, get excited! Jim Sapala here. By now you know Nissan of Devon has the best deals on new Nissan. For example, you can lease a 2013 Altima for $159 a month or buy for just $15,995. But there's one problem. We sold so many new Nissans and taken so many quality trades, our lots are bursting at the seams. With hundreds of choice vehicles, I'm sure to have a ride for you. At NissanofDevon.com, we feel so great about our pre-owned vehicles that each one comes with a lifetime warranty. As long as you own the car, you're covered. It's the best warranty on pre-owned vehicles in the entire country. Now, who does that? We're not number one yet, but we will be soon. So get excited about our best-in-class pre-owned vehicles today. Jim Sapala's Nissan of Devon, minutes away and a whole lot less to pay. With every test drive at Jim Sapala's Nissan of Devon, we'll donate $25 to bring hope home. These three years, $5,000 cash or trade down. Tax and tags extra. See dealer for details. Pre-owned purchase Ultima stock D00328. Lease Ultima stock C13323. 
Hi, my name is Nicole Zell, and I'm the new host of Soundstage. Every Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m., we'll be featuring local musicians and upcoming artists. That's Soundstage, every Thursday, 4 to 5 p.m., with me, Nicole Zell, on WCHE 1520 AM, the talk of Chester County. Go Hunt PA to enjoy the outdoors, to be with family and friends, or to put food on the table. Whatever the reason, the Pennsylvania Game Commission invites you to Go Hunt PA. Log on to pgc.state.pa.us to find information on wildlife, hunting, licensing, and much more. While you're there, subscribe to their email service to get all the latest news, like reminding hunters that fall turkey and black bear seasons open in November. So Go Hunt PA and let a ram truck take you there. Engineered to move heaven and earth. Guts, glory, ram. Hey, this is Rocco DeSpirito, and you're listening to WCHE. Welcome back to Life on Edit. I'm your host, John Averly. Today I have former U.S. Marshal, 32 years of service, Denny Barand. We are talking about the Marshal Service and we'll be getting into bail bonds type of business very shortly. But, Denny, let me ask you, um, what is something we don't know about the Marshals? If you had to pick something, what, do, what don't you think the average person really knows? Uh, I, you know that's a that's a hard question because there's a lot of things that uh, yeah. you know, that there are misconceptions in that business as well. But I think the, one of the um, things that really uh, meant a great deal to me uh, was the camaraderie, and, and that's the thing that people I think kind of take for granted to some degree, but they don't really know, uh, you know, don't don't really understand it until you've actually experienced it. For example, um, my wife and I. Do travel a little bit throughout the United States, and she says, "I've never met anybody like you." She says, hey, you, "No matter what city we go to, you could got a telephone number for somebody that you can call that you know that you work with that will help you get a rental car, or find a place for you to stay, or you know, I mean, all these things." And uh, and we do the same thing uh, on the other end of it when people are coming into the Seattle area. So I think there's that camaraderie. It's the same kind of thing that you know men in combat or people in combat have. It's the same thing that um, any other law enforcement agency has, and it's, it's very strong in the in, in the Marshal Service, and it's nationwide. That's incredible. Seattle Police, I still stay, you know, up with a lot of the guys I work with there, uh, go out to dinner with them and so forth, but it's all located in Seattle. Marshal Service is nationwide, so you've got these connections all over the nation, and they'll be there for you. How on the mark was the fugitive? Let me ask you that. Was that uh, uh, pretty good? Did they cover what the Marshals do as far as going after a fugitive, especially a high-profile one? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was really a, a good presentation. Uh, I mean, it's Hollywood. We know there's yeah. you know some poetic license taken there, obviously. But Marvin Lutz, who's now passed away, was the um, U.S. Marshal in uh, in Chicago, Illinois, at the time that, that was filmed. And he, if you look in the credits, he was one of the people that uh, was actually in the credits as a as a technical advisor. And uh, you know how you wear the firearms and the badges, and you know they even filmed some of the um, scenes in the Marshal Service office there. And, uh, you know, the, the, the leap of faith was, you know, how did, you know, the Marshal Service get involved with a local crime, you know, yeah. which is the alleged murder of this woman. And they kind of brush over that and you know, it goes into this task force thing. And, and 
and the reality of it is we do have these task forces now, and they're all over the United States. So that was kind of, a, you know, yeah, we do this, uh, but nobody ever really, you know, thought of it in those terms, that it would ever get into movies and that sort of thing. And now we have task forces all over the United States, and something like that happens. Yeah, there are going, our deputy U.S. marshals will be involved in all those high-profile cases. Have they expanded the services at all, Denny, with the U.S. marshals concerning working with homeland security and counterterrorism now? My understanding, and you have to understand that I'm retired 13 yep. years now, but my understanding, and I, in fact, I'm going into the marshal's office next week and sit down with the chief deputy who actually worked for me when he was a, a new deputy coming on the job. He's now the chief deputy. And we're going to go over some old case files and paperwork and things like that uh, from the historical perspective. So the, the things that have changed the most is, number one, technology is absolutely incredible, and that goes you know, cross-board in law enforcement. Uh, but uh, the mandate for the marshal services expanded in the sense that we now do proactive things. Marshals are out there involved with, uh, to some degree, the homeland security issues, but also importantly with uh, child pornography, yeah. uh, things that go over the Internet, uh, human trafficking. Those are all new mandates that the marshal service is now proactive, not just reactive, and they're out there initiating cases and, and, and doing a really impressive job on bringing some of these people into custody. Now, let's talk about one of your biggest cases. And I, again, had the privilege of interviewing Christopher Boyce and Kate and Vince a few weeks back. And that's one, you know, one of the main reasons I reached out to you. I thought I owed it to you to get your side of the story on when you were able to bring Christopher Boyce back into custody after he broke out of prison. I kind of want to reset it for my listeners. You know, If you may remember, I interviewed Christopher Boyce, also known as the Falcon from the movie and the book, The Falcon and the Snowman, Christopher and Dalton took secrets from a company and sold them to the Russians in the late 70s and subsequently got put into federal prison in Northern California. Now, when Christopher breaks out, that's a tremendous story in his new book, by the way, Denny, it, how he describes what he did to get himself out of prison. Now, he was on the run for 17, 18 months, and he committed... What was it, 17, 18 bank robberies during that time period? Yeah, yeah 16, he was charged with 16 counts of bank robbery and conspiracy to commit bank robbery. Now, he actually stayed more or less, you know, from the Seattle area on down to where the prison was. He actually went outside the prison gates at one point and visited, at least that's what he says in his book. How difficult was it for you guys to track him down? I understand there were rumors placing him in South Africa, South America, they had him in Canada. They had him in Mexico. Were you guys spread out that much looking for him? Yeah, it was really interesting, and you should bring that up. Um, now, I, to clarify for your listeners, the book The Falcon and the Snowman, that was the original arrest that was made by Christopher Boyce. Yes. And and that was done by the FBI, and yes. what they called in those days foreign counterintelligence. It had nothing to do with the marshal service. However, once he escaped from prison, then that became the duty of the marshals to track him down once again, going back to that uh, court order. The court order was a warrant for his arrest for escaping from uh, federal custody. And this was truly one of the big cases, the, the first big cases the marshals uh, had. It was a task to find this guy, and and it was a, not an easy task. And uh, we were we were in, strictly in competition with the FBI as uh, getting our feet on the ground and really becoming the fugitive hunters that marshal services become over the last 20 and 30 years. So it was a big case to us. It was, had huge importance as far as the agency was concerned. And yes, uh, we had a, a deputies that went to South Africa. We had them going down to South America. 
uh, headquarters uh, was really, you know, supervising the whole process. Uh, and they were doing a good job of it. But, you know, Chris was a really good uh, fugitive. Well, he's uh, a he, smart man. He, he's, he's almost genius IQ, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, don't ever for a moment think that any any single deputy U.S. marshal ever underestimated his intelligence or resourcefulness. I mean, we were very, very cognizant of that. And uh, so when we started to work on the case, as, as you pointed out, we were going all over the map. And uh, then, you know, those things, the great things happen. You just keep uh, working on it. You keep throwing mud against that wall. The fugitive is built. And at some point, you're going to find that place where the mud sticks, and that's where where you really go to work and try to find out what, what's what's behind that. How can we, you know, get into this situation, into this uh, guy's head, his background, his activities, his friends, his family, his the informants that might come forward, and then the informant came forward and uh, from sold that them point, out. Sold yeah. them out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you guys were looking for him, had you pieced together that the bank robberies were also a part of him at that point, or did that take a little while to put the you know, put the two together? No, there was speculation about it, but nothing really solid because, um, you know, there's there's several things that fugitives, the good fugitives, know how to do, and that is to cut themselves off of their past. And, and Chris did a really good job yes, of that. Yes, he did. He did a great job of that, and he maintained a low profile, and, um, you know, nobody really raised their eyebrows with him around. I mean, he didn't tell anybody who he was, that kind of thing. Amazingly... Um, you know, this informant came forward, and he probably came forward without any idea of who he was really uh, dealing with. And But it rang bells with us. And uh, from that point, we were able to uh, get in long ball story. But uh, handwriting exemplars, things like that. And that nailed him down to the Port Angeles area uh, in the state of Washington here as being there. Now, him being there, we're convinced that he's there, and finding him were still two different things. Did you, by any chance, did you uh, do you know now that Chris had a plan going on in his head about breaking back into prison and getting Dalton out? No, I didn't. I, I didn't know anything about that at all. Yeah, yeah, that's in yeah. his book. He actually went back to the prison and he camped outside of it. He says in the book, uh-huh. and he was looking for ways. He had this idea. He'd been taking flying lessons. Yes, and he had that's this right. idea. Of, and people thought he was taking flying lessons, that he was going to somehow end up in Russia, that Russia was going to take him with open arms. Yeah. But he was taking flying lessons, and he wanted to learn how to fly a helicopter so he could land in the prison courtyard and break Dalton out, which, to me, when he told me that, I thought it was the most bizarre thing <laughs> I had ever heard from anyone that would be on the run. I guess that, for you guys, would have been the last thing you would have thought of. Well, you know, I'll tell you, there were... Uh a couple of bank robbers that we dealt with, uh, Joseph Doherty and Terry Lee Connor. Yeah. Uh, they and uh, they were really. I mean, if you can consider bank robbery, <laughs> you know, elements of, of uh, <laughs> professionalism in bank robbery. I mean, they were at the top of that profession, and um, they robbed banks for literally millions of dollars. And uh, Terry got arrested. He was in prison. Uh, he was not in prison. He was awaiting trial. Uh, probably you're getting ready to go back to prison down in Oregon, and we found. Found out through an informant that um, uh, Joe Doherty, who was still out, was his his partner, uh, was planning. He he went to Oregon. He rented a house. 
he uh, bought some cars. Uh, he had a, a safe house set up there so that uh, if they got him away from the marshal service uh, custody uh, to hide out for several days and then hit on, and then go out on the road and hit the road again. Uh, his whole whole plan, and we discovered that plan and immediately moved him out of the district, and the plan fell apart and, and crumpled. But it's it's not unusual. Uh, I mean, it's, I'm going to tell you it, it has happened in the past, and it doesn't surprise me that Chris may be thinking doing something like that. That was just one of the most bizarre things when he told me that, yeah. and when I read it in the book, I was like. Man, you're either like a very caring person or there's just something a little wrong there. Yeah. But tell us, when you found Chris, wasn't he eating a burger at some sort of burger joint out in his car? Yeah, yeah that's, that's true. He was. Um, interestingly enough, um, what had happened is, when, as I said, we had him fairly well located as far as we were. We thought he would be up in this Port Angeles area. And Port Angeles, if you, if your listeners look at a map of the United States and you see that very, very northwesterly quarter of the United States, that's, that's where we were. And that's called the Olympic Peninsula. And there's, you know, outside of, um, you know, uh, Alaska and, and uh, some other places, it's pretty remote area up there, and one of the most remote areas in the United States. And uh, it's, it's easy to hide out up there. And the other thing that happens is people up there don't ask you a lot of questions. Uh, they, you, know, you don't um, create problems for them. Uh, they don't ask questions, and you can be a fugitive, and they just don't even want to know about that. And so um, I had gone up there back in the 70s, uh, and I started to, uh, once again, you know, read the manual, supposed to arrest people, and I uh, dropped in on the part-time magistrate in Port Angeles, Magistrate Doherty, and introduced myself to him, and he says, you're actually going to come up here and make arrests on these warrants? And I said, well, <laughs> my thoughts, sir. And he says, well, he says, son, come over here. He says, let me show you this. And he had a whole drawer full of unserved warrants. He says, take your pick. <laughs> he says, I'm glad to have you here. And so I started to work with the native tribes up there uh, in the Olympic Peninsula. I think there are like 17 native bands up there uh, that are registered. Uh, I started to work with local law enforcement. And so uh, and, and I think there was mention of me being in charge of the task where I wasn't. That was done by headquarters. But I was kind of the go-to guy out here and because I knew uh, all the players up in that area. I knew the law enforcement people. I knew, um, you know, I knew the, the terrain. I traveled up there. I'd arrested people and that sort of thing. I found housing for the task force when we went up there. I did so with the people that I had a personal relationship with that I knew wouldn't talk about what we were doing. I got in touch with the, uh, the key people in the various law enforcement. There's Clallam County Sheriff's Office, Port Angeles PD, and uh, brought the key people in on that so that I knew that they wouldn't, um, you know, start to talk about the situation and might get out and he might get scared and he might take off and all these wow. things you, you, you consider. And uh, so then we brought the task force up there. And then one of the things that we needed to do is... I said, well, we, you know, for our informant, we need to have a uh, 78 uh, Harley Davidson chopper. And, I, and they <laughs> came to me and they said, Denny, where do you, where, you know, trying to rent a motorcycle back in those days was unheard of. And uh, so I said, uh, you know, I just might have a resource for that. And I went to a dear friend of mine, a guy I went to high school with, and he owned a motorcycle shop. And he said, well, I don't have one. He said, well, I'll give you this guy's name. And so I went over and I chatted with him. And he said, how much would it cost us to rent this? And he said, I'll tell you what. He says, I don't know what you guys are up to. He says, and I, I told him it was his mission that I couldn't talk to him about. He says, 
not a problem. He says, you guys, uh, law enforcement guy through and through, he says, uh, and it was exactly the bike we needed. He says, if you take this bike and you use it, you can you just use it and bring it back. He says, if you break it or you bend it, he says, you bought the bike. And I says, okay, that's great. Well, of course, within the first week or two, the guy that had was riding it sees the engine up up on, up on the Olympic Peninsula somewhere. We had to bring it back on a tow truck. Um, <laughs> and I go to the guy, you know, I go back to the guy here at the motorcycle shop, and I say, God, you know, I'm sorry, what, what do we owe you for the motorcycle? He says, wait a minute, is that, because this is after the arrest, and he says, is that what that bike was used on? I said, yeah, I'm, yeah, that was. He says, hey, no, no, he says, I got so many stories I can tell with this now. He says, don't worry about the bike. He says, I can fix that. That's not a problem. He says, just, hey, great work. You know? So hey, we didn't have to pay for the bike. You probably but, sell it online now. If, if, you, if you had what we have, if you had then what we have now, that bike would be worth probably a couple hundred thousand yeah. dollars. Yeah, it probably would. Yeah, Going back in the day. Danny, we're going to roll into a break real quick. On the comeback of it, we're going to talk about what you do as a bail bondsman, you and your wife. There's so much that's interesting on that. We'll be back in a moment. My name is John Averly. I'm the host of Life Unedited. We'll talk to you in a few. Want to know what's going on with your favorite celebrities when it comes to entertainment, fashion, beauty, fitness, and lifestyle? Well, tune in for The Bryn Project every Wednesday at 12.15 and every Saturday at 12. I'll even catch you up on childhood stars like Boy Meets World actor Will Friedle. By the time I hit 30, I stopped doing on-camera work entirely. I'm having too much fun doing the voiceover stuff. Find out the latest tour and album information from your favorite artists like pop sensation Carmen. When we were working on the album, we had so many songs recorded. And some of them sounded really fun and really Carmen. And I think a lot of the stuff that inspires us is really fun. Check out tips for balancing life as a working parent from people like actress Melissa Joan Hart. It was difficult because I was missing them a lot. But now we have decided to all get together more. And so we've been traveling back and forth across the country as a unit. Also, get motivated to get healthy with experts like Good Morning America contributor Tori Johnson. So I realized that rewarding myself with food is akin to an alcoholic celebrating a month of sobriety with a beer. And you never know what some of your favorite stars might say. The last time I was in Philly, they surrounded me and they were like, we love you on MTV, you're our favorite comedian. Aww. And I was like, Aww. So you don't want to miss all the action. Check out The Bryn Project every Wednesday at 12.15 and every Saturday at 12, right here on WCG 1520 AM. If you want to know what's happening in Harrisburg and across Pennsylvania, then you need to check out pamatters.com. Video, audio, news article features, and reporter blogs will keep you in touch with your lawmakers at the state capitol. It's all available in one place, pamatters.com. Each and every month, we bring you an exclusive conversation with Governor Tom Corbett as he discusses the major issues in the Commonwealth and answers your questions submitted through pamatters.com. Catch all the latest talk and watch archived video clips from past shows. pamatters.com also brings you the latest headlines from Radio Pennsylvania, covering the stories that affect you and your family. Bookmark pamatters.com and check back daily for your state news fix. We're also on Facebook. Click like and join in the conversation on the PA Matters page. This is Governor Tom Corbett. I'm ready to take your questions, so stop by pamatters.com today. pamatters.com. People. Politics. Pennsylvania. My dad came to live with us last month, and you know, it's going pretty well. I feel like I never have time for myself. With him being around more, it really lets us catch up on things. His memory isn't what it used to be. We get up and we have coffee. He usually wakes up at 4.30. 
Then we go for a walk. He needs lots of my attention. I do need to keep an eye on his medications, though. That's important. Sometimes I feel like a pharmacist. I'd say John and the kids are adjusting. Pretty well. They honestly have no idea what I'm going through. It can be a little challenging. Help, but so far so good. I could really use just a little help. For those dealing with the daily struggles of caring for a loved one, we hear you. That's why AARP created a community with experts and other caregivers for advice, tips, and support. Together, let's help each other better care for ourselves and the ones we love. Visit aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Hey, I'm Sarah Chalk from How to Live with Your Parents for the Rest of Your Life and Scrubs, and you're listening to WCHE 1520. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Denny Barand. He is a former U.S. Marshal, 32 years on the job. He also is part owner with his wife, Gail, of Lacey O'Malley Bail Bonds out of Seattle, Washington. And we're going to start talking about that a little bit here in the final segment, the final 10 minutes. Danny, i got to let you know I'm being preempted for the Westchester University football game at 11.50, and I apologize for that. I just wanted to let you know. No problem, no so, problem. That way we're set. Danny, um, what is a bail bondsman? I mean, I can go backwards and watch old movies, and obviously bail bondsmen have been around since right after crime started being committed. But what exactly does your company provide? What are the services? Well, it's uh, you know it's interesting you should talk about the historical pr- perspective because uh, actually the the concept of what we do and we call surety bonding, mm-hmm. and uh, that is is a unique thing that uh, was actually founded to some degree uh, as far back as the Roman Empire when people would uh, a, somebody would guarantee that somebody else would do something, and that's what we do in our business here. We're uh, unlike an insurance policy which has a has uh, two parties to the contract. We have a three party contract and one of the people in that in that contract is going to guarantee that someone else is going to do something and that is to go to court and make all of their court appearances so <clears throat> When I write a bond, uh, I, I think that the first thing that comes to people's mind when they t- I tell my bail bond agent, and then my past history in the marshal service, they think I'm out there, you know, doing bounty hunting work. Yeah. And and I don't do that. I haven't done it yet, other than the first few months that I was in this business, and then only to you know, convince my wife that I was really in love with her and that this is going to be something that's going to work out for us. But anyway, um, uh, what we do, and I always uh, often say, um, most of the people, I have a few frequent flyers, but most of the people that we deal with, that we write bonds for, are decent, honest American citizens who have never been in trouble before and are never going to be in trouble again. And we have the opportunity, our service, gets them back to their, their life that they're used to, they get them back to work so they can have a cash flow, take Take care of a family, uh, you know, bring themselves back into their community, their neighborhood, and see themselves through one of the most difficult times in their life. And it's a it's a, a business that uh, has so many. Um, Sounds like an all-state insurance commercial. 
mean, that's what it sounded like to me. Like we have you, the good, you know, the good hands people, whatever it may be. Yeah, but it's yeah. definitely changed. But yeah. now I'm curious about how you actually make money on this, and kind of follow me for a second. Let's say I, you know, I'm, I'm busted for something. It's a hundred thousand dollar bail. I need ten percent. That's ten thousand. I come to you. You're giving me the ten. I understand, so I can get out. What's happening to the other ninety in okay. case I skip? And sure. how are you making your profit off of that ten or whatever I'm I'm giving you? Okay, let's talk about that. Okay. <clears throat> let's say. Um, uh, let me think. I'm trying to run through a recent case that we might have had. Let's say, <clears throat> excuse me, a domestic violence issue or something like that. A guy's never been in trouble before, and so you've never been in trouble. And something has gone wrong in relationship or an accusation has been made. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, normally what will happen in our business here, I brought into the business uh, the contact with um, a whole group of criminal defense attorneys. Now, when I was a deputy U.S. marshal and I was in this, uh, uh, running the office on the day-to-day basis as the operations supervisor, those guys, their life revolved around me because I could bring their clients up and get them back to jail and all this kind of stuff. And I just felt that we were all in this uh, business together, that I was not in an adversarial position with these uh, people from the criminal defense bar, and I was going to try to help them as much as I could to get their job done. And never thinking that would come back and be a benefit to me. Hmm. Well, now, after I retired, these same individuals, uh, men and women from the criminal defense bar, remember Denny. And they say, oh, my God, you're in the bill. Oh, we know we can trust you. Yeah, because, you know, it's a business that doesn't have a good reputation. I will be the first to tell you that. And... uh, they can trust us, and they know how it's... Okay, so let's get back to your question. So there's been a, uh, an issue, uh, you've been arrested, and you have gone to court, and they have set bail at $100,000. So I'm going to get the $10,000 premium. That is a non-refundable premium. That's the money I get. That's the money I keep, and that's what goes into my company. <clears throat> and now, the next thing I do is that I take a bond, a piece of paper, to the court. And that's worth $100,000. And I give that to the court, and that document is a contract between myself, my company, my surety company, the court, and the defendant. And one of the things that I'm going to do that's integral to this whole thing is I'm going to find an indemnitor, someone who is the member of the family, a friend, someone like that, that has $100,000 that they could pay to the court if the person doesn't show up in court again. So... I've got that third party involved in there. And what we always talk about in our company here is a circle of love. You know, do does that person have the circle of love around them? Does he have a parent? Does he have a friend? Does he have siblings, uh, work people, someone like that, that will come forward and, and say, yeah, I'm going to put my house on the line. I'm going to put my, um, you know, 401k program on the line, whatever it is, because I know that he's going to come back and make all of his court appearances. And when that happens then I'm exonerated from the bond, and, I, and I, everybody's happy. Now, there are two ways to make bail, okay? So the one way, and I always tell people, bail is bail is bail. So you can take that $100,000 cash to the court, and they will hold that $100,000 cash. And if you don't show up, they keep the 100000 If you make all your court appearances, then that 100000 in total goes back to the indemnitor and or the defendant. So what we do is we allow 
because most people don't have that kind of money to leave sitting around in the court. Yeah. For our 10% fee, then we post that bond in lieu of cash. So instead of putting that $100,000 cash in the court, you give me $10,000, I put uh, a stake into this. I'm, I've got liability for that okay. $400,000, and ultimately my insurance company, the surety company that backs me, is ultimately liable for that 100000 if something happens to me and my wife and, and you know, we're left. I mean, right now we probably have... Twenty to thirty million dollars worth of outstanding liabilities in the courts in in Western Washington. Wow, just out on the streets. Yeah, right. Wow. People that are out there. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. Well, I got about two minutes left. Let me ask you something, Denny. And I'm very impressed. I mean, you know, not that it matters to me that I'm, you know, to you that I'm impressed. But I wonder, have you thought about politics at all, Congress out there? <laughs> I mean. You must be approached quite consistently on it. I, I have been asked, and actually, um, I, I am. Uh, I sit on the board of directors uh, for uh, two organizations. One is Crime Stoppers of Puget Sound, and uh, that's a different side story. We'll talk about that someday in the future. Yeah. And I'm also on the uh, board for uh, the Washington State Bail Agents Association as their legislative chair. And so I, I do get down to the Washington State Legislature. People have asked me, yes, you, you're right. I've been talk, approached by more than one person, um, both the D's and R's. And, you know, I tell you, John, I was never been given anything in my life, and I find it really hard to ask people for money. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm there with you, Denny, and, and, and I, you know, I got to tell you something. Um, I, you have an open invitation to come back on the show anytime, and I'd like to keep you in my files for any questions I have related to law enforcement. But if you decide to go in to throw your hat in the ring, whatever I can do on my end, doing some interviews and giving them back to you, not a problem. I mean, it sounds like... You could really do some good things out there. Well, John, thank you so much for that. I, I really appreciate it, and I've certainly enjoyed uh, being on board with you today. And uh, let's leave that door open. I'll be looking forward down the road uh, if you need me back. Uh, if you want me to explore some of these other things, we're just kind of scratching the surface here. Yeah, but yeah, I'd be happy yeah. to talk to you in depth about some of the individual cases. I don't give out names, of course. Yeah. But some of the human interest things that we have in our business here, and, and uh, it, it's uh, it's really a fascinating business, way different than most people think it is. Oh, Danny. I got definitely got a couple shows. I appreciate it. Denny Barand. We have been talking about the U.S. Marshal Service, the bail bonds industry. Denny, I appreciate it. Happy Thanksgiving to you and your family. And to you and yours as well. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. You've been listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Aberly. I will be back next week.